Well, again, good morning. We are in the third week of our series called Silence and Solitude. Uh, we are looking closely at this practice of Jesus that we desperately need, I think, in our lives today, in our cultural moments. Uh, and this morning, we're going to continue uh, to kind of press into this practice of Jesus uh, by really considering what does it mean to actually practice silence and solitude. What does it look like? We've talked about how we kind of get there, why we need to get there, how we get there, but what happens when we get there? <laughs> what do we actually do with this silence and solitude? Uh, and so I, I want to start in maybe a surprising place with our conversation this morning. I want to show you uh, a short clip from uh, Late Night with Conan, um, and it's, uh, it's even more shocking. It's uh, from the comedian Louis C.K., uh, an interview, and I just want to, if you know who that is, there's some shock and awe uh, in the service. Uh, you never thought you'd go to a worship service and Louis C.K. would be featured, uh, but uh, it's heavily edited, heavily edited, so it should be fine, but I, I just wanted uh, us to watch this because he's asked uh, the question, uh, why is it that you don't let your kids have smartphones? Uh, and so this is, this is how he answers the question, so take a look. The thing is, I, you need to build an ability to just be yourself and not be doing something. That's what the phones yes. are taking away, yes. is the ability to just sit there like this. That's being a person, right? Yes. No one can, they've got to, uh, you got to check. Because, there, you know, underneath everything in your life, there's that thing, that empty, forever empty. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> that, yes. Yes. Yes, I. Yes. Yes, Just I know that, what you're that talking knowledge about. that it's all for nothing and you're alone. You know, it's down there. <laughs> and sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching it, you're in your car and you start going, oh, no, here it comes <laughs> that I'm alone. Like it starts to visit on you. You know, just the sadness. Yes. Life is tremendously sad just by, you know, being in it. And so you're driving, and then you go, uh, that's why we text and drive. I look around, pretty much 100% of people driving are texting. Yes. And they're killing, everybody's murdering each other with their cars. Yes. But people are willing to risk taking a life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for a second because it's so hard. I was in my car one time, and a Bruce Springsteen song comes on. And it made me really sad. It's like Jungle, what's the one? Jungle Jungle Jungleland. Jungle, this one where he goes, hurry! And he sounds far away. You know, I was like, that's, 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 half, that's half of them. Yeah, that's a lot of them. <laughs> yes. Bruce. And I heard it, and it gave me kind of like a fall back to school depression feeling. It made me really sad. Yeah. And I go, okay, I'm getting sad. I've got to get the phone and write hi to like 50 people. <laughs> anyway, I started to get that sad feeling, and I was reaching for the phone, and then I said, you know what? Don't. Just be sad. Just let the sadness just stand in the way of it and let it hit you like a truck. <laughs> and I let it come and Bruce, and I just cried. I cried so much. And, I, and it was beautiful. It was like this beautiful, it's just this, sadness is poetic. You're, you're lucky to live sad moments. And then I had happy feelings, because when you let yourself feel sad, yes. your body has like antibodies. It has happiness that comes. Rushing in. Rushing in to meet the sadness. So you're, I was grateful to feel sad, and then I met it with true, profound happiness. It was such a trip, you know? And the thing is, you never feel completely sad or completely happy. You right. just feel kind of satisfied with your product. Yes. And then you die. <laughs> so 
that's why I don't want to get a phone from my kids. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, so I, I love that clip because uh, I think it, it highlights uh, several things, but I, I just want to hit on two real quick. One of the things that I think he puts his finger on is just the reality that we all have this kind of deeper level of, of emotions, right, that are, that are down there somewhere in us. And, you know, some of them are positive, but some of them are negative, right? And he, he talks about, uh, what does he call it, the forever empty knowledge that is all, that it's all for nothing and you're utterly alone. That's what he says. You know, I love how the, the, the crowd's kind of like, ha, 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 and then it's kind of, ha, 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 they're nervous, you know, because it's like, oh, that's too true. You know, it's not funny. Um, and so, uh, so he, he's kind of put his finger on that, right, that that's kind of going on uh, in all of us. And, you know, as followers of Jesus, if you're, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, um, the, we know that it's not all for nothing, right? We know, we know that in Christ. We have meaning and purpose. We have a life with God. We have a life together as the family of God. We have the spirit of God within us. We know that's not uh, totally our experience. But even still, right, even still, there, there is that reality to life in this world, right, that there's this, this tinge of sadness, this, this level of underlying sadness uh, to our life. Um, Henry Nouwen uh, says it this way. He says, even... This is for followers of Jesus. He says, even in the most happy moments of our existence, we sense a tinge of sadness. Every bit of life is touched by a bit of death. But this can point us beyond the limits of our existence. It can do so by making us look forward in expectation to the day when our hearts will be filled with perfect joy, a joy that no one shall take away from us. When Jesus returns, what he's talking about, that, that joy will be made complete. But yet, even in Christ... You know, he says, even in Christ, in this fallen world, we experience this level of sadness. And it's, it's kind of always there, just under the surface of our lives. So that's the first thing. The second thing I think he puts his finger on is that we avoid that at all costs. <laughs> we try to avoid feeling or dealing with that reality, that, that sadness that's underneath everything, at, at almost any cost. I love how he said he, he resisted the urge to go for his phone that one time. Uh, and he let the sadness hit him like a truck, right? Because that's what it feels like. If you really open yourself up to that moment sometimes, it can feel like just in the silence and the solitude, all these emotions just come rushing forward and kind of bubbling up from somewhere within. Because in silence and solitude, we, we actually come face to face, don't we, with, with who we really are. And not just who we are, how we really are how we're doing. We come face to face with that. And the truth is, I know I feel this way a lot of times, that's very uncomfortable. You know, in fact, a lot of times it can feel really terrifying to have that experience. And I think there's reasons for that. I think we're scared to be alone with ourselves, terrified to feel emotional pain and, and sadness, the doubts, the questions, to sit with the uncertainty of our lives that we're really not in control of anything. When we come to terms with that, it can be terrifying. I think it's, it's also because we're scared to be alone with God. I think there's a fear there. Maybe as you've kind of tried this silence and solitude thing or because you haven't tried it, it's because you, you're, you're afraid of what's going to happen if you step into that space. Maybe you're afraid that God won't show up. What if nothing happens? What if it's just you sitting in silence by yourself and there's, there's no one there? What if you discover that 
you don't actually have a relationship with God when you enter that space. You're just going about all this religious activity and busyness, but to be with God, that's a totally different thing, and, and it can be scary. And so I think we all have these kinds of fears, and the question is how are we going to work through those fears? How are we going to enter into that honestly and then work through it and come out on the other side with God and experience the healing and the freedom that he wants to bring us in those moments of silence and solitude? And so to help us answer that question, we're going to look at the life of Elijah this morning. I want to encourage you, if you've got a Bible, you can open up to 1 Kings 19. It's in the Old Testament. We just heard uh, it read 1 Kings 19. We're just going to look in those first few verses because I think it's a, a helpful picture of what it means for us uh, to enter into this place of silence and solitude with the Lord. In fact, um, John Mark Comer identifies what, what he calls seven stages, or you can think of these as kind of steps or ways to think about this journey into silence and solitude. And I found these to be really helpful. And so I just want to share these stages with you uh, with the caveat that this is not a formula, right? This is not, oh, you just do these things in lockstep and then bam, you pop out on the other side uh, having, you know, kind of been with God and dealt with all this junk <laughs> in your life. That's not how this works. But there are kind of seven helpful stages he identifies in Elijah's kind of life and in this moment. And so they're resting, waiting, feeling, naming, hearing, being transformed, and then re-entry, re-entering into the world. And so what I want to do this morning is we're just going to look at the first four, and then we'll look at the next three next week, okay? So, um, so a little context really quickly for Elijah. If you're not familiar with Elijah, Elijah was a prophet. He lived in the ninth century B.C. He was called by the Lord to go uh, to the northern kingdom. There had been this civil war and division within Israel. And these ten tribes in the north were rebelling against God. They were worshiping idols. Uh, they had forsaken their first love, Yahweh, the one true God. And so Elijah's called to go and be a prophet to them. He goes... And in 1 Kings 18, what we see is this incredible encounter, this, this um, encounter between uh, Yahweh and one of the, the idolatrous gods called Baal. And the prophets of Baal come, and they're basically wiped out by fire from heaven from the Lord. And then following that, Elijah, he calls uh, for it to rain. And there's been a three-year drought in the land. Um, and he calls for rain, and it begins to rain for the first time in three years. And so what you see is this high... This high water mark, so to speak, right, in Elijah's life and his ministry. Everything that, that God has been kind of doing in his life, it culminates in this great moment. And, you know, you would think, okay, now Israel's going to turn back to the Lord. They'll return to their first love. But, in fact, that doesn't happen. And, and worse than that, what happens is uh, Ahab and Jezebel, they actually put a, a price on Elijah's head. They say, we're going we're to have you killed. And so Elijah, in fear... And in confusion, runs. He runs for his life. And that's where we pick up the story. It says in verse 3 of chapter 19, And Elijah was afraid, and he rose and he ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. So he's gone back to the south, and he left his servant there. So he's going off by himself. And it says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. That's like a, uh, like a juniper tree or uh, like a, uh, like a cypress-type tree. So he's, he's, he's found this place of shade, and he's going to rest there. And he, he rests there, and, and it says, he says this. This is his prayer. It's a one-line prayer. He asks that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take 
away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he laid down and he slept under that broom tree. So one minute, super high. Next minute, really, really low. And the next thing that kind of happens is his, base, his whole life kind of unravels for him. And the only thing he knows to do uh, is, is to just get away from everything. So he leaves his servant. He goes off into the wilderness, into the Aramos, as we talked about last week, the Aramos, for a time to be quiet and alone with the Lord. Now, what does he do when he gets to that wilderness? Well, we just read that. He, he stops in the shade of this tree, and the first thing he does is he prays. Now, there are some great prayers that we should emulate in the Bible, and then there's terrible prayers that we should not emulate. This is a terrible prayer, okay? This is, this, he's so exhausted, right? He's so depressed, demoralized. He's in despair. And what does he say? It's a short prayer. I just want to die. I just want to die, Lord. Enough is what he says. Now, keep in mind, this is a prophet of the Lord. This is a man who knows how to pray, who's seen God answer prayer. This is the lowest of the low for him to be in this place, for him to pray this prayer. He prays this weak prayer, I just want to die, and then he falls asleep. So that's what happens when he goes to the wilderness. Um, and then in verse 5, it tells us this happened. After he fell asleep, it says, an angel came and touched him, woke him up, and said, arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate, and he drank, and he laid down again. So the Lord sends this angel to him, uh, and, and it's interesting. The angel comes and says, wake up, and doesn't say, hey, wake up and pray a better prayer. That was terrible. <laughs> Try again. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say, all right, I want you to build an altar, and I want you to start worshiping me here under this broom tree. You know, you might expect something like, no, the, the angel comes and makes him a meal, feeds him, cares for him, and then says, rest. And he goes back to sleep. And this is what Elijah does in the wilderness. When he first gets there, he sleeps, he eats, he drinks, repeat. That's what happens when he gets there. So this is the first stage, you know, in those seven stages. This is the first stage, resting. When we enter into silence and solitude, the first stage is not to do a lot of stuff. It's to rest. There's such a thing as what Ruth Haley Barton in her book that we've recommended uh, she calls this um, good tired and dangerous tired, right? So there's a good tired that you can experience in your life. Uh, a good tired is that you've had a full day, you worked hard, you got some physical exercise, and you get home and you're ready to go to bed until you fall asleep. That's good tired. But there's also a dangerous tired. There's a tiredness that I think we all can slip into that comes from never stopping, never really resting. And when we get dangerous tired, we don't have the energy to do the things in our life that are truly life-giving. Things like prayer, things like worship, things like reading scripture, time with good friends, just to go for a walk. Right? Things that are good for our soul. We don't have the energy for those things. And so what happens is we default to escapist behavior. Right? When we're dangerously tired, we default into this, this mode where we, just, we don't have energy for anything, but we don't feel like doing anything good, so we just like veg in front of the TV. We binge watch Netflix for hours on end. Or we default to a place where we pull up some pornography online because we're just so exhausted. We don't have the energy to pursue good things. We, we drink half a bottle of wine or a six-pack just so we can fall asleep every night. See, that's dangerous tired. And that's the place that we can end up if we don't 
have rest. Because the reality is we were created for rest. We go right back to the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2. The Lord created the order of the, of the universe to incorporate rest into our lives, rest. Our bodies, in other words, are not kind of incidental to our spiritual kind of life. You know, sometimes I think we, we end up there. We kind of divide things up. There's like physical and spiritual. No, there's you created in the image of God and it includes all those things, right? And so there's this understanding that it's all connected, and so there's a problem. When we don't know how to rest, it directly imp- impacts everything, our spiritual lives included. And part of the problem is that I think we don't know how to rest. We don't know how to rest. We get so dangerously tired, and we just don't know how to rest. And I, I, I'm personally learning how to do this. I think we're always learning how to be better at resting. Just this weekend, uh, our family did this. We just stopped uh, we, we didn't do much of anything on Friday or Saturday. I think we, we went swimming on Friday. We got made Langley a Mother's Day breakfast, the kids and I did, on Saturday morning. Uh, I think that's it. That's all we did for two days. Uh, and, you know, there's a part of me that's like, oh, man, we, we were so lazy. <laughs> you know, like, but, but it's because I, we're learning how to rest. We, we don't know how to rest. We can only think of it in those kinds of terms, like, oh, you're either doing it, going full force 100%, or you're lazy. You know, we kind of live in that weird place, and the reality is that, that we need to rest. We need to slow down, and so that means saying no. We said no to some great opportunities this weekend, some good things, but we said no. We said we're going to rest, and it wasn't easy. It was hard, but we need rest. We need to learn how to rest. So the first thing is rest. Second stage is waiting. Uh, Look what it says in verse 8. Strengthened by the food Elijah had received, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. Now, Elijah, uh, you know, he has this kind of eat, drink, sleep, repeat kind of thing going on. And at some point, he gets up and he goes on a 40-day journey to Mount Horeb, which is also in the Bible called Mount Sinai. Right? So Mount Sinai is a big deal in the scriptures. Why? What happens at Mount Sinai? Yeah, Moses encounters God. God reveals his name. God reveals the, the Torah, the, the, the Ten Commandments, the law for his people. All these things, but the presence, right? The, the cloud and the fire, all that, the presence of God is what Mount Sinai is supposed to bring to our minds. And so he's headed that direction. He's going to that place. He's on a journey to encounter God, because he's desperate for God in these moments. Now, it's about 250 miles by foot, approximately, from where he is to get to this mountain. Um, Now, the average person, healthy person, could walk that distance probably in about two weeks, you know, if you had a good, you know, good pace. But it takes him 40 days to go that pace. Now, it could just be symbolic, sometimes 40 days and 40 nights, it just means it was a long time. But I think the point remains. It took him a long time to get there. He was moving at a relatively slow pace. And I think, again, it just points to the fact that that he's being very intentional here in in this desolate place, in the wilderness, in the Aramos, that he's, he's moving towards God, but there's this sense in which he's waiting. He's just waiting on the journey. He's not doing nothing, 
Waiting doesn't mean do nothing. He, he's moving towards God on this journey, but there's a sense in which he's waiting. And I think it highlights just a very simple truth, and that is this, that seeking God takes time. Seeking God takes time. You can't microwave it. You can't shortcut it. It takes time. There's something that happens when we take the time and we spend an hour waiting on the Lord. There's something that happens in our souls when we give a day just to rest, to Sabbath, to be quiet and still. There's something that happens that can't happen in 10 minutes before breakfast at the start of our day. And I'm not, I'm not against 10 minutes or 15 minutes with the Lord every day. I think absolutely. But that by itself is not, there's so much more. <laughs> In other words, there's so much more. And, and God wants to invite us into that more. And so that's why we're talking about this as a practice. Right? We're using this language of practice because we want it not, this is a one-off thing. Oh, great, we did this sermon series and we're, we're more silent in solitude. That was awesome. What's next? No, we, we want to establish a practice. Right, a habit within our life of spending time alone in the quiet with the Lord because we need this built into our lives. And that's why I, I want to suggest even now you begin thinking, maybe over the next month, think about trying to find one day where you can just set aside that day. And this will, this will be really hard, but it's never going to be easy. It's hard just to set aside a day, maybe for a personal retreat and quiet. And silence. Find a place you can go. Take your Bible, your journal, and just be quiet and still. But let's, let's, let's be intentional about the waiting and creating space for the waiting. Third stage is this, feeling. Third stage is feeling. Verse 9, there Elijah came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? What a question. Imagine he's journeyed all the way and encountered the presence of the Lord, expects maybe to hear just some word of encouragement or something, and the Lord asks him a question, right? Hits him with this question. What are you doing here, Elijah? In other words, what's going on with you, right? What, what's going on in you right now, Elijah, that's brought you to this place, not just geographically, but this moment? Why are you here? What are you doing here is what he says. And it's a question, I think, that is, is really profound because it unlocks for Elijah, it, it unlocks for him all that he's feeling, right? He has to think about the answer to that question. What am I doing here, Lord? And it opens up all these emotions, right, that have been bottled up in Elijah. It's interesting, that, that journey, that 40 days, there's no, no words that come. There's no prayers that are offered. There's no angel that appears after he sets off on the journey. It's just, it's, it's silence. He travels seemingly in silence, at least from the text. And so he comes here, and he's had this time, this process, where, where he can really examine himself and his heart. And what he's found is that within him is doubt and frustration and anger and insecurity. It's all in there. And the Lord's trying to get at all that stuff that's in there. And so after resting and waiting on these 40 days, he's had ch a chance to examine his life, examine his heart, and he's not so exhausted now. He's not rushed now. He's rested, he's waited, and now he gets to a prayer, again, that goes beyond, I just want to die. 
right? He prays again. And what does his prayer say when he comes to this point? Well, he's offering more. He's more self-aware. He's, he's bringing these things before the Lord, and that comes to the fourth thing. So he, he's felt what he, what he needs to feel with the Lord, but now the fourth thing is he can name it. He can identify these things, and he can name it. So resting, waiting, feeling, and then naming. Not only does Elijah have the courage to feel all these things that are going on inside of him, but he has the courage to name them before the Lord, just as they are. No pretense. Everything comes out. Total honesty. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Look at verse 10. First, what comes out? The good. I have been very zealous, passionate, committed, zealous for the Lord God Almighty. That's true. He has been. He's been totally committed to the Lord, and that's good. And he's saying, I'm here, Lord. I've been faithful to you. I'm passionate for you, and that's good. But then look what he says next. You get to the bad. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. No one is listening, Lord. This isn't working. The mission is failing. Israel is not turning back to you. That's the bad. And then the ugly. And, and, I, even I, only am left. I'm the only one left, God. It's just me, all by myself, and they're trying to kill me. Now, first of all, that's a lie. It's not true. He's not the only one left. If you read on in the chapter, God even reminds he says there's 7,000 other faithful in the north. And he's saying, look, that's not true, okay? So let's not get, let our ego get all kind of caught up in this. That's the ugly, right? But it's coming out. He's bringing it before the Lord. And he's saying, look, I, I have a problem. I, I want to quit. That's what Elijah's saying. I want to quit. I don't want to be a prophet anymore. That's what he's saying to the Lord. I don't want this life. I'm tired of the failure. I'm tired of the suffering. I'm tired of it all. And so you get the good and the bad and the ugly. Now, just try to imagine coming into the presence of the Lord and saying those things. Right? How terrifying is that? Just to be honest, like that before the Lord. It must have been terrifying. But also, what courage to overcome the fear enough that he, I mean, that takes guts to say something like that to the Lord. So I think it's an invitation for us. The Lord's showing us. We, we can enter into that place with unvarnished honesty before the Lord. Again, to quote Henry now, and this is what he says. He says about solitude, this place of just being totally honest. He says this, solitude is not a private therapeutic place. It's actually a place of conversion, the place where the old self dies and the new self is born. In solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding. No friends to talk to, no telephone calls to make. This is an old quote. Uh, no meeting to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract. It's just me, naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. Probably not going to see that on any coffee mugs anytime soon, that quote. But it hits home, doesn't it? I mean, that's the space that we're invited into. Solitude and silence is not some kind of spiritual trip to tranquility and inner harmony and happiness. That's not the silence and solitude that we see here. It's not the silence and solitude that Jesus invites us into. It's a place where the real us encounters the real God, where the real us has to 
come to this place where we're, we're, we're safe to be honest with the Lord. And then he can do the deep work of heart transformation in us. The truth is most of us do not want to go there if we're honest. We don't want to let ourselves feel, much less name, all that stuff that's inside of us. We don't want to do that because it's scary. But that doesn't change the fact that it's there, does it? You can pretend it's not, but it's all there. It's all there under the surface of your life. And it's, it's not going anywhere. You can ignore it. You can distract yourself from it, but it's there. And here's the thing. If you don't deal with it, it's going to spill out all over your life and the lives of others. If you don't deal with all the junk that's inside you, that the Lord wants to heal, that the Lord wants to deliver you from, that the Lord wants to cultivate the, the, the true self in Christ that you are, if you don't allow yourself that to happen, it's going to spill out. It's going to spill out in your relationships. It's going to spill out in your, if you're married, in your marriage. If you've got kids, it's going to affect your kids. It's going to affect your sexuality. It's going to affect the way you work, the way you manage money. It's going to affect everything. It's going to spill out. And so here's the thing. It's not whether or not you have stuff, Okay? We've all got stuff deep within us. And it's not a question of, are you going to deal with it? Because you are. One way or the other, you're going to deal with it. The question is, is there a safe place to deal with it? Is there a safe place to enter into with all that we are just as we are? In Christ, and yet in need of his healing and deliverance and his mercy. And that involves this process of silence and solitude. It involves us getting quiet and alone with God. That's where you can begin with this process of healing and freedom. And so it's not about hiding from God. It's about moving towards God with all our junk. It's about dealing with our true selves with Jesus, with the help of his Holy Spirit. It's about resting and waiting and feeling and naming so just, we're going to pick that up next week with the, the last three, um, what it means to hear from the Lord, be transformed, and re-enter into the world. Um, just last thing real quick, I just want to give you this as a, maybe as a takeaway. Uh, if you've got nothing else from this morning, here's the thing. This process that I've just kind of described, you can't rush it. You cannot rush it. The, the reality is, man, most of us would just love to jump to hearing from God and transformation and re-entry, right? You know, like... We want to sit down, have our 10 minutes, knock it out, get a word from the Lord, you know, and then we can just jump out. And we're Good, I'm good. Thank you, Lord. I got it. I'm ready to go. And that's not how it works. It's a process. It takes time. And God wants us to rest and to wait and to feel and to name because he wants us to be ready for what he wants to do and what he wants to say. And we need to allow his Holy Spirit to prepare us for that. So we need to slow down. That's the bottom line. We need to slow down. We need to rest, wait, feel, and name. Create space in our lives. Create space for our souls to really come into God's presence so he can do this deep, heart, transforming work. So let me pray. Holy Spirit, we, 
we simply ask this morning that you would teach us how to do this. God, you, you can change us in a moment, and sometimes you do. But Lord, more times than not, it, it, it looks more like Elijah's life where we need you to lead us into this process of resting and waiting and feeling and being honest with ourselves, honest enough to name before you all the things that are within us. So Holy Spirit, would you help us? Help us to do that. Help us to trust you. Help us to know that you love us and this is safe. This is a safe place for us. Simply, Lord Jesus, we pray you would help us to be with you. We pray that in your name. Amen. Amen. We invite you to stand. We're going to affirm our faith together. We do this every week. Just remind us of who this God is and what he's done for us out of his great love for us. So let's say these words together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. We'll take a few moments in prayer. So if you want to bow your head, we're just going to come to the Lord just as we are. He knows our needs. So I invite you, either silently or loud, just to present those uh, to the Lord. And Lord, as we, as we come to you this morning, we just acknowledge our need. Lord, that we desperately need you. Lord, you've given us everything in Christ, and so you long for us to know the good gifts that you long to give us by your Spirit, the gifts a father would give his children. So we just we want to come to you and ask for the things that we need and for the needs of others. So we come to you now, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.
before we continue to pray for Andy and for Charlie. Uh, Lord, we pray for your complete and total healing.